Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's American Passages. I'm Dr. J. Today, I'll be reading a passage from Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850 romance, The Scarlet Letter. Many of you may remember The Scarlet Letter from high school, whether you actually read it or not. I say read it or not because though there is no American book I admire more than The Scarlet Letter, I'm not sure it captures the interest of many high school readers for a couple of reasons. First of all, Hawthorne didn't write it with young readers in mind, and for younger readers, its full intensity is probably lost in its unfamiliar passions and old-fashioned language. Secondly, most teachers probably feel it's their duty to begin the Scarlet Letter with its first pages, a long, really long, preface entitled The Custom House, which rehashes in Hawthorne's ironic fashion his time as an agent in the Salem Custom House and his bitterness about losing this untaxing and, quite frankly, political sinecure. This preface isn't properly a part of the Scarlet Letter at all, but was written in response to his publisher's sentiment that the romance was too short to be published on its own. Hawthorne's self-justification for this overlong self-indulgence is that he weaves into it a fanciful account of how he came to write the Scarlet Letter. He recounts finding an old piece of cloth, the Scarlet Letter of the title, in a long discarded package. This passage is both relevant to the Scarlet Letter and unexpectedly intense, and I recommend to any high school or indeed college teacher who might be listening that they read it with their class and then tell them to skip the rest of the preface and begin with chapter one, the prison door. Let me read this passage from the preface, not as today's passage, but as preface to it. Pondering the old moth-eaten rag of scarlet cloth, Hawthorne, he claims, held it to his breast to imagine what it might have looked like as an ornament of clothing. It seemed to me, Hawthorne writes, it seemed to me that I experienced a sensation not altogether physical, yet almost so, as of burning heat, and as if the letter were not of red cloth, but red-hot iron. I shuddered and involuntarily let it fall upon the floor." The Scarlet Letter proper begins, as I've said, with the door of the prison, we would now say jail, of the English colony at Plymouth, Massachusetts, 200 years before Hawthorne's time. The Puritan colony was still in its infancy and was thus representative, in Hawthorne's mind, of America's earliest formation. The prison door opens and a young woman, Hester Prynne, steps forth with a babe in her arms. The babe's father isn't known, and thus Hester's confinement. She has broken the law forbidding adultery. She is now being set free but only with the stipulation that she forever wear on her breast the letter A, signifying that she is an adulteress. Somewhat to the scandal of those looking on, she has made the letter of beautiful scarlet cloth with fine gold embroidery, 
causing the women of Plymouth, if not the men, to ask among themselves whether Hester is truly repentant. The Scarlet Letter soon skips ahead seven years, and it's after this passage of time that today's passage appears. The reader will by now have surmised, spoiler alert, the child's father is Arthur Dimsdale, the pastor of Hester's church. We find Hester and Dimsdale together in the forest surrounding Plymouth, unseen by the community that still doesn't know the father's identity. Their daughter, named Pearl, now seven years old, plays nearby, though out of sight. It's the first time Hester and Dimsdale have been alone together since Pearl was conceived. While they talk with doomed intensity of their lives these past seven years, Hester tells the pastor a secret that the reader has known all along. During these seven years, Dimsdale has had a boarder, a strange old doctor, to whom Dimsdale has trusted his mind and soul. The doctor, who goes by the name Roger Chillingworth, Hester reveals, is her husband. Let's join Hester and her pastor as he responds to this news. From The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne The minister looked at her for an instant with all that violence of passion which, intermixed in more shapes than one with his higher, purer, softer qualities, was, in fact, the portion of him which the devil claimed and through which the devil sought to win the rest. Never was there a blacker or fiercer frown than Hester now encountered. For the brief space that it lasted, it was a dark transfiguration. But Dimsdale's character had been so much enfeebled by suffering that even its lower energies were incapable of more than a temporary struggle. He sank down on the ground and buried his face in his hands. I might have known it, murmured he. I did know it. Was not the secret told me in the natural recoil of my heart at the first sight of him, and as often as I have seen him since? Why did I not understand? O oh, Hester Prynne, thou little, little knowest all the horror of this thing and the shame, the indelicacy, the horrible ugliness of this exposure of a sick and guilty heart to the very eye that would gloat over it. Woman, woman, thou art accountable for this. I cannot forgive thee. Thou shalt forgive me, cried Hester, flinging herself on the fallen leaves beside him. Let God punish. Thou shalt forgive. With sudden and desperate tenderness, she threw her arms around him and pressed his head against her bosom, little caring though his cheek rested on the scarlet letter. He would have released himself, but strove in vain to do so. Hester would not set him free, lest he should look her sternly in the face. All the world had frowned on her. For seven long years had it frowned upon this lonely woman, and still she bore it all, nor ever once turned away her firm, sad eyes. Heaven likewise had frowned upon her, and she had not died. 
but the frown of this pale, weak, sinful, and sorrow-stricken man was what Hester could not bear and live. Wilt thou yet forgive me, she repeated over and over again. Wilt thou not frown? Wilt thou forgive? I do forgive you, Hester, replied the minister at length, with a deep utterance out of an abyss of sadness, but no anger. I freely forgive you now. May God forgive us both. We are not, Hester, the worst sinners in the world. There is one worse than even the polluted priest. That old man's revenge has been blacker than my sin. He has violated in cold blood the sanctity of a human heart. Thou and I, Hester, never did so. Never, never, whispered she. What we did had a consecration of its own. We felt it so. We said so to each other. Hast thou forgotten it? Hush, Hester, said Arthur Dimsdale, rising from the ground. No, I have not forgotten. They sat down again, side by side, and hand clasped in hand, on the mossy trunk of the fallen tree. Life had never brought them a gloomier hour. It was the point whither their pathway had so long been tending and darkening ever as it stole along. And yet it enclosed a charm that made them linger upon it and claim another and another and, after all, another moment. The forest was obscure around them and creaked with a blast that was passing through it. The boughs were tossing heavily above their heads, while one solemn old tree groaned dolefully to another, as if telling the sad story of the pair that sat beneath, or straining to forebode evil to come. The letter A, as I've said, stands for adulterous. When Hawthorne scholars get together to party, though, they often enjoy suggesting what else the A might stand for. Admirable, for instance, or simply the letter grade they give to their students' best papers. The most popular suggestion is antinomian, a scholarly word now, but a familiar, even notorious word in America's early colony days. It's a word that still stands today for something of central importance to American society and culture, to American identity. So I'd like to use the rest of this episode to explain it and discuss both how it relates to Hester and to America today. Antinomian quite literally means against the law. Those of you who study religion may recognize it as a Christian heresy, the heresy that those who have the Holy Spirit don't have to obey biblical laws. It's a heresy that easily arises out of Protestant Calvinism, which teaches that salvation is achieved not by good works, but through faith. Thus our Puritan forebearers, deeply Calvinist, were watchful that antinomianism not work its way into their society. In the early days of Puritan Boston, a woman named Anne Hutchinson was accused of being an antinomian 
and after two trials, one civil and one ecclesiastical, she was banished from Massachusetts. Hutchinson defended herself not by denying the charge, but by citing the words of St. Paul, quote, The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life, end quote. In Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, the letter, which in Paul's quote means Jewish law, becomes literal. The letter A Hester is doomed to wear. In the first chapter of the Scarlet Letter, we are told there grew beside the prison door a wild rose bush that, quote, may have sprung up in the footsteps of the sainted Anne Hutchinson, end quote. Without question, Hawthorne intends a connection between Anne Hutchinson and Hester Prynne. But what is the connection exactly, and what does it have to do with America today? We see Hester Prynne's antinomianism in today's passage, so let's go back to it. Dimsdale believes that he and Hester sinned in the act that brought Pearl into the world. Their act violated the law, both biblical law and the civil law of Puritan Plymouth. But does Hester believe they have sinned? We might expect her to. She, after all, wears the scarlet letter, the emblem of her sin. But when the guilt-ridden Dimsdale says that there is in the world a worse sinner than he, that Chillingworth, quote, violated in cold blood the sanctity of a human heart, end quote, and that he and Hester never did so, Hester passionately agrees. Never, never, whispered she. What we did had a consecration of its own. We felt it so. We said so to each other. Hester is not repentant. What she and her lover did had a consecration of its own, despite the law, whether biblical law or the civil law of their society. Why? Because she and her lover felt it did, because they said so to each other. This is the antinomian spirit, and it resides deep in the American psyche. One of my favorite moments in American film comes in the original Ghostbusters, when the heroes finally win over the mayor and are granted a police escort, the Bill Murray character exclaims, Let's run some red lights! I don't think such a line or the antinomian impulse that gives rise to it would appear in the cinema of any other country. By way of contrast, while reading this week, Conversations with Goethe, I was surprised to come across a conversation about a law requiring that all German citizens be inoculated for smallpox. Though some oppose the law, Goethe does not, saying, quote, I am against any departure from the strict law requiring inoculation. Indeed, I am always for strict adherence to the law, end quote. It would be hard to find an important American artist or thinker, either today or in our past, who would agree with Goethe's larger, more general statement that the law should always be obeyed, however they might feel about obeying a law requiring inoculation against a particular disease. But at the same time, 
societies need to suppress the antinomian spirit, just as our colonial forebearers suppressed Anne Hutchinson, is also deeply embedded in America's psyche. Conservative American society in the 1960s struggled and failed to suppress the antinomian spirit of Woodstock. Now the roles have reversed, and the descendants of Woodstock struggle to suppress conservative Americans who want to speak as they wish and do as they want, including refusing to inoculate themselves against COVID. Americans are now consumed in a struggle over what the law in America should be, liberal or conservative, with each side determined to enforce the law when it goes their way and to not obey the law if it goes against their spirit. In the words of the great John Cougar, ain't that America? The Scarlet Letter and its story of two doomed lovers remains, then, central to American identity and American experience, 200 years after it was written and 400 years after it set. Dimsdale, the weaker of the two lovers, succumbs to the guilt a controlling society imposes on him and dies with the letter of the law burned into his breast as if with a hot iron. Hester, the stronger of the two, and the embodiment of the American antinomian spirit, doesn't succumb, but maintains her sense of self, not by challenging her Puritan society, but by finding a place for herself on its margins and becoming a source of counsel and comfort for others, particularly other younger women in distress and so, perhaps, challenges her society after all. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.